Let's open God's Word to the book of Joshua. If you will find chapter number 3, in just a minute, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Joshua 3, 1 through 11. We're still, of course, in the midst of our sermon series, or rather long series, on, on the great events in the history of redemption that tie the Bible together. And we're looking today to make vital connections between the old covenant people of God and the new covenant. And we're making note of this amazing drama of redemption that is playing out on every page of the Bible, and it finds its blessed consummation in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage is no different than any of the others we've studied so far. The setting for chapter 3 is just prior to Joshua leading the people of Israel over the Jordan River into that land, that gift, that homeland that the Lord had promised to give Abraham and promised his descendants. And now they're about to get there. They're about to arrive, and it's going to be their land, their home. And Joshua now gets them ready, and so we begin reading in chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, and he and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on, go before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I was with Moses so will I be with you also. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites, and the Perizzites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. The word of our God stands forever, and may he be exalted now by his proclamation. Well, Joshua was making preparations for the people to go over into the promised land. And you might remember that they had received this favorable report from the two spies, the two spies that had met Rahab. And now with that good news in his ears, Joshua begins to prepare the people for their entrance into the covenant land. We're told that Joshua rose up early that morning. He was very eager to do the will of the Lord. He was very eager to inherit the promise that the Lord had made to the covenant people. And once again, we note the immediate obedience of Joshua to all of the orders of God. He is going to accomplish the will of the Lord. It's the mission of the Lord. 
And so without delay, Joshua obeys and he will execute everything that Yahweh has commanded him to do. And so he leads the people of Israel right up to the edge of the Jordan River. And according to verses 1 and 2, there they lodge, they wait, they, as it were, camp out for three days. They wait. They do nothing, but they lodge there. And maybe the Lord brings them to the edge of the Jordan, building such intensity, building such anticipation in order to test them one more time. Will they wait upon the Lord? Will they trust the Lord's timing? Will they trust God's plan? Will they trust the Lord's wisdom? Will they retreat in fear? Would they believe the promise the Lord had spoken to them earlier in the book of Deuteronomy that when they marched across the Jordan into the promised land that the Lord would fight for them? Would they believe that? And so here they come. What will they do? Will they impulsively move out or will they wait? But maybe there's something else going on. Could it be that the Lord is impressing upon Israel the impossibility of what he has commanded them to do. Could it be that they come to the edge, there's the promised land, filled with all of these people, these Canaanites and these Girgashites and these Amorites and all known as Canaanites, who had iron chariots, a formidable enemy, would they be able to get across this swollen river and destroy those cities, would they be able to do it? Well, on paper, it looked like it was totally impossible. For when they got to the Jordan River, it was at flood stage. You can see this in verse 15. Before they faced off against the Canaanites, they had to face the water. And the Jordan River was not like it normally was during the year. According to verse 15, the Jordan would overflow its banks at this time of the year. Normally, the Jordan River might be between 3 and 10 feet deep, maybe maybe 100 feet wide. But now, it is way over their heads. In some places, the Jordan River at flood stage was over a mile wide. And here they're camping, and they, they look across, and been, they've been commanded to walk, to walk across that river and And yet it was impossible. So what were they thinking? What was God going to do? Now you need to remember this is the second generation of Israelites. And many of them had either not been born or were way too young to remember the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember that generation died out because they would not believe the Lord. And so here the second generation comes and they've heard about the Red Sea. But will they believe that God will do it again? And so they wait. They're being tested by the Lord. And then Joshua circulates an order as they're waiting. And he tells them to look at the Ark of the Covenant. And notice it is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. And when that Ark starts to move, Joshua says, Now you people of Israel, you follow that Ark wherever it goes. Now what was that Ark? What is the Ark? What was the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? Well, it was a box. It was a box made of acacia wood. And we know its dimensions. It was four feet by two and a half by two and a half feet. And we know that it was essentially a portable throne for the invisible God. 
That's right. It was a portable throne. It's been said by one Old Testament authority that the warrior, the divine warrior, of whom no image was possible, is represented by his throne there, that ark. It is the throne of the warrior, the Lord God Almighty. According to one description, the ark was covered with gold. It was carried on poles, inserted inserted into the rings in the four corners of the ark. The lid of the ark, the mercy seat, was a gold plate surrounded by two antithetically placed cherubs with outspread wings. And inside the ark was the Decalogue and a pot of manna and Aaron's rod. And that ark was the meeting place where the Lord would reveal his presence. It served as the symbol of God's presence, the mysterious, awesome presence of the Lord in their midst. And so Moses, rather Joshua says, before you do anything, watch that ark and wherever that ark goes, you follow it. Now again, inside that ark was the Decalogue, that is the covenant document. The document setting forth Yahweh's gracious relationship with Israel and the terms thereof. Inside that ark was the written record of their sacred obligations, the covenant, the covenant document, the Ten Commandments. But there was also the manna, a sample of manna that had been preserved. And that manna was a reminder of God's grace, the the grace of God that had been given to them when they had nothing, they had no food. And, And there in the wilderness, in the desert, in no man's land, the Lord fed them. And it symbolizes their full dependence upon the grace of God and how God faithfully gives his people whatever they need. And there's a sample of that manna in that ark. And they're to follow that ark. They are to submit to the commands of their king. They are to depend upon his sustaining grace. They must walk by faith and not by sight. They must trust and obey. There is no other way. They are the new people of God. They've been raised from the dead. They've been rescued from Egypt. They've been saved at the Red Sea. They are God's own son. He is their father, and they are to follow wherever he leads. And we can see that we have a lot in common with them already. That old covenant picture there, there's the people of Israel at the edge of the Jordan River. They're about to follow that ark, and we can identify with them, for that is a picture of our lives as Christians. We are their direct descendants. We are the children of Abraham. We are sons of God by faith, and our marching orders are the same. Our marching orders are not housed in a box anymore. They're in your hands. You're holding the Word of God. And we have a greater privilege. They had just a a fraction of God's written will, the Ten Commandments. But you have 66 books of the Holy Canon. What an incredible privilege. This is the covenant document. Holding it in your hands with your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning. And we have the same assurance represented by that manna. The Lord will feed us. The Lord will nourish us. He will give us whatever we need, and we're to follow him and to depend upon his grace. And so we see ourselves here with them, don't we? Will we walk by faith? Will we obey? Will we trust his gracious provision? 
But there's something else we ought to notice this morning in verse 4. They're to follow the ark, but they're to keep their distance. Look at this in verse 4. They're to keep a distance of some 2,000 cubits. That would be about 1,000 yards. Follow it, but don't get too close. There shall be a distance between you and it about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you've not passed this way before. That's a strange order. What's that about? Well, I think you know the answer. This is, this is an order that has to do with impressing upon the covenant people that though Yahweh was their God, and though He was with them, and though, was, though He was close to them in redeeming love, He, he was still the holy, unapproachable God. And you feel the tension. He is their Lord. He's their Father. He's with them. He's close to them, but He's holy. He is imminent with them. He's he's as close as one could be, and yet He is transcendent. He cannot be trivialized. He cannot be approached except on His terms. He cannot be manipulated. He is not like the idol gods of the Canaanites, the false gods that could be used and treated as good luck charms, the the false deities that would serve the selfish ends of their worshipers. No, Yahweh must be honored and obeyed as the one true God, for the God who was with them and who loved them and who was their father is a consuming fire. And they have to keep their distance to respect His holiness to respect His transcendence, to respect His glory, to respect the creator-creature distinction, to respect the fact that there's a mighty distance between a holy God and the sinful people that He has redeemed. And that lesson Israel would have to learn over and over and over again. And then in the same verse, He tells them, the ark is going to show you which way to go. This is a way you've not known before. And so you're a new people. You're going you're gonna to take a different route. You belong to Yahweh. You're going to go where He leads, a new direction, one of His choosing. He will lead you, to borrow the psalmist's words, He will lead you in the paths of righteousness, in great distinction to the paths of wickedness with which the Canaanites could be characterized, walking the path of unrighteousness. No, you will walk the pathway of righteousness, a way you've not seen before. My way. You'll go my way. You must follow me because you can't find a way by yourself. Apart from his direction, the Lord is saying, apart from compliance, apart from obedience, apart from his bid to follow, they will not please him. They will not arrive at the destination. Surely, if they disregard the word of the Lord, if they don't follow the ark, if they don't listen to the word of the Lord, they will be led astray to other gods and they will be far, far away from him at the end of the day. So they must watch and obey and step carefully and walk the way laid out before him, submitting to his authority, avoiding idolatry, not trusting themselves, not trusting the leadership of their own inner promptings, 
Because the religion of Israel is not one of subjective feelings and spiritualized hunches. No, they, they walk according to the will of the Lord. They don't do what feels right. They don't do what allows them to fit in with the culture. They walk where the Lord leads them. They don't trust themselves. They don't trust their own hearts. They trust the will of Yahweh. And so they keep an eye on the ark. Their God has spoken. He has written down his word, and now he is leading them very clearly. His word is the center of their lives. And if they're going to remain his people, the word must be central. They must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Yahweh's word, all-sufficient, all-powerful, authoritative, and perfectly pure. They must follow the word and trust his spirit. Further preparations are made in verse 5. There you see the order to consecrate yourselves. Before they cross over, they must consecrate themselves. They must dedicate themselves. In view of what the Lord is about to do, they have to be ready for what they're going to see. They have to be ready for what they're going to experience. And you know what the Lord is saying? He is saying you're about to become soldiers now, every one of them. Israel had no standing army. They were all soldiers, from the least to the greatest. You are all soldiers now. You are all warriors of the king. You must be committed. You must be serious and focused and tuned to the commands of the Lord. You can't be lazy. You can't be passive. You can't be undecided. You're a soldier. You're a holy warrior. And so on the night before the battle, you remember what you're doing and you remember who you're doing it for. And then as they got ready, the Lord said, now you're going to see some wonders. Notice that word, wonders. The Lord is about to do some wonders among you. Now that's an interesting word. Because that's the word that appears in the record of the plagues. When the Lord did wonders among Egypt and he rescued his people, every one of those plagues was a wonder. And the Lord says, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do something that cannot be explained in, in human terms. I'm going, to, I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to release my power. And you need to interpret this event carefully. I'm going to bring it about for a reason, not just to display my power, but I'm going to demonstrate something to you and for you. I'm going to demonstrate to you, the Lord says, that I am the true sovereign God, your king, who saves you, and that there is no other God. There's no rival to me. There's no enemy that can stand against me. I'm not simply going to conveniently send an earthquake or conveniently send, you know, a, 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 a natural event that would just time out perfectly to let you walk across. No, no, I'm going, to, I'm going to do something myself here. A miracle pointing beyond itself to God's faithfulness and his wisdom and his love. The Lord is going to save them again, again at the Jordan River. And then in verses 7 and 8, you see there's this promise. The Lord the Lord promises Joshua that Joshua is going to be exalted. He is the replacement for Moses, and 
And like the Lord exalted Moses, the Lord is going to exalt Joshua. And then, and then Joshua, that, with that word of affirmation from the Lord, commands the priests. And he tells the priests to come to the brink of the river and to get their feet wet and to stand still in the Jordan. Now, we, we can't even envision that scene properly, so we need to think about this. The water is flowing. It's, it's the melting season, the the snows have come off the mountains, and the spring rains have come, and the water is rushing. It outpaces the Flint River. It's wider than the Flint River would have been when you've seen it here on our own property flowing as it is. No, this is a, a torrent of water. And the Lord commands the priests who are carrying this sacred ark to go stand in the flow of the river. Now, that's irrational. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be in any way blasphemous with my language, but on a, on, a human, on a human plane, that's pretty irrational. The water would have easily been way over their heads. The, the speed of the flow would have knocked them down. They would have drowned. They would have dropped the ark. It would have been submerged and lost forever. And so what is the Lord up to by telling the priest to take up the sacred thing, that sacred piece of furniture, as it were, that represented God among his people and walk out into a flood? What is the Lord doing? A strange if you would permit me, almost ridiculous command. And yet, that's the order from the Lord. And with that order ringing in the ears of the priests, who certainly were probably thinking, what is Joshua up to? Joshua turns to the people and he says to them in verse 9, Now here is how you're going to know that I'm among you. Here is how you're going to know that I am going to drive out. And he mentions seven nations. Isn't that something? Seven nations, seven city-states, representatives of those who lived in the promised land, enemies of God, with whom God had been patient for over 400 years, waiting on them, waiting on them before he invaded, giving them time to repent. And here are these seven nations that could all be characterized as Canaanites. The Lord says, I am going to prove to you that I will drive them out for you. I will do it. And I'm going to help you understand it by giving you a demonstration of my power. A great miracle will transpire so that every Israelite from the youngest to the oldest will know and be completely assured that the Lord is able to deliver on any promise he makes. A wonder is about to happen. A miracle. They will witness it. There will be experiential knowledge of it. You will know. Look at the language of verse 10. You will know. You will know yourself that the living God is among you. So whatever's about to happen is going to be real. It's going to be tangible. It will happen in history. They're going to see something, hear something, know something. God is going to act. A mighty act will be unleashed. And he will do it because he loves them. He will do it because he's the judge. He will do it because he's made a promise to them, and all of it looks completely impossible. All of it. The water, the iron chariots, the seven nations, the troops well-trained that could not be counted, the walled cities, 
facing off against pilgrims. Impossible. Impossible. But this was their mission. A mighty God was about to act. We'll have to wait till next week to see what happens. But I want you to think about something with me. I want to spend our balance of time this morning thinking about the connections there are to you and me here today. I would like for us to take a breather and remember where we've traveled from so far in this series where we've looked at the story of redemption beginning in Genesis 1-1. There's been a theme. I don't know if you caught it or not, but there's been a recurring theme, a, a pattern, if you will. And, and here we see the pattern really enunciated by the drama, by the story itself. Over and over again from Genesis 1 all the way up to Joshua 3, one word seems to have characterized everything, and that is the word impossible. Impossible. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In the opening lines of the Bible, we encounter the formless darkness and the chaos of the primordial earth. There is darkness, no form, and chaos. Who will bring order? and light. Impossible. And then God says, let there be light, and and there was light, and the earth was then formed into cosmos. And all of creation was illuminated by the glory of the light of God. And into that darkness came light. Impossible, absolutely, but it happened. But there was no life on the planet, this one lonely planet. There was was no life. Impossible. And then God said, let the earth sprout. Let there be lights in the heavens. Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and the birds and the sea monsters and every living creature. And suddenly this this lifeless planet is teeming with life. But there were no humans. Impossible. No humans. And then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. And from the dust of the ground he formed Adam, a real man, and from a bone taken from his side, he formed Eve, a real woman, and there were two human beings made in the image of God. You can say impossible, but it happened. It happened. And then sin comes. Sin makes its entrance into that garden temple, and it ruined everything. Adam and Eve were chased from the garden. The Lord stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword at the entrance to the garden temple. He threw them out and he kept them out. Adam and Eve removed from God's presence. Now they're sinners. They are transgressors. They are aliens and strangers. How would they ever get back in to God's presence? Impossible. That's right. 
But did you notice that on their way out, the Lord clothed the shame and the guilt of their naked bodies with the animal sacrifice. And the Lord showed them in shadowy form a way back in. The Lord would do the impossible. There would be a way back into that garden temple one day. And then we come to the days of Genesis 6. And sin has run its course. And the world is so bad. It's such a wicked place. There's that verse that none of us can properly apprehend. That the Lord was sorry that he made man. As he gazed the scene of what once was a beautiful creation, now completely destroyed, as it were, by man's sin, the Lord says, all of his deeds are only evil continually, and the Lord was sorry that he made man. Can anyone be saved at all? Impossible. Impossible. And then we read, Noah found grace. In the eyes of the Lord. Impossible? Yeah. But it happened. And then the Lord said, build a boat, Noah. But there's no water. There's no nearby ocean. The Lord said, Noah, build a boat and place in it all the animals that I command to come to you. Impossible. No reality. He did it. And the Lord sent a flood, and he brought worldwide judgment. And the skeptics say, impossible, but it, but it happened. And the Lord brought judgment, but he spared Noah and his family. And the ark landed high and dry, and there was a, a new birth for humanity. Noah's family. And that was the rainbow of the new creation. There would be a new earth. He cleansed it with the waters of the flood. Now it would be new. There would be a new start. The story moves on. There's a man named Abraham. He's a pagan. He's raised in a pagan family. And the Lord determines to create a new humanity from this one man who is a pagan when the Lord spies him. Impossible. And yet Abraham hears the call, and he responds. The Lord says, Abraham, I'm going to make from you a nation. But Abraham is too old. His wife is too old. She's barren. He can't father a child, completely impossible. And yet Isaac is born. You say, I say impossible, and God says no problem. A child. And then Joseph. Continuing that line, there's Joseph, and, and his brothers throw him out like the trash in a dumpster. And lo and behold, he's taken to Egypt, and he becomes second in command of Pharaoh. Now, impossible, yeah, but it happened. 
And God preserved his people 400 years in Egypt. Then there was a Pharaoh who came, and as you know the story, those 400 years that we read about were years of bondage and slavery and oppression, and Pharaoh's power was so great, and the people could not escape. And would the nation die, Pharaoh was determined to kill them, and yet, and yet God saved them. Their escape was impossible, but the Lord brought his hand against Pharaoh, and the plagues came. And Pharaoh said, get out of here and run. Go serve your God. And they did. And then Pharaoh chased them. And they came to a place called the Red Sea. And they looked back and there were the chariots of Egypt coming after them. And they were all about to be slaughtered like like so many fish in a barrel. Impossible. And the Lord parted the Red Sea. They get across. And they begin to look into the promised land. They send 12 spies and 10 come back and they say it's impossible. There are too many enemies in Canaan. They're too big and we need to go back to Egypt. We may have been enslaved, but at least we were safe. And two spies say, no, it looks impossible, but we serve a God whom nothing is impossible to. And here we are again, mission impossible. The theme has repeated itself, and it will repeat itself throughout the story of salvation. There's an order, march across the water, go take the land, and that is impossible. But that's what God does. 2,000 years ago, the greater Joshua spoke of that which is impossible You might know the story well. It's in Matthew 19. We know it as the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus, who shares the name Joshua with the Old Testament Joshua, has an encounter with this young man who came to Christ wanting to know how to gain everlasting life. And Jesus gives him five commandments to keep. And he dusts those off. He says, I've kept all those commandments from my youth up. What am I still lacking? That was easy. Tell me what I have to do to be saved. And, and then the Lord said, what you have to do is sell everything you have and give the proceeds to the poor and, and come follow me. In other words, you have to cast down your idols. You have to repent. You have to believe. You have to follow me. And the scripture says the young man turned away for he was grieved in his heart. He was one who owned much property. And then in Matthew 19, 23, Jesus turned to his own disciples and he said to them this, and listen well, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard that, they were greatly astonished And they asked Jesus this question, who then can be saved? And listen to the answer Jesus gave. Matthew says, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man this is impossible. Mission impossible. We might say it is easier for you to walk across a swollen Jordan River, or through the Red Sea, or across an ocean, than it is for anyone to enter the kingdom of God on their own. It is impossible. 
it is impossible. But then Jesus completed, he completed his statement there in Matthew 19. He said, it is impossible for a rich man or anyone to enter the kingdom of God on their own, but with God all things are possible. That's what this is about in Joshua 3. He brought them to the brink. He made them wait three days to show them that this is impossible. Salvation is of the Lord, not of men. Salvation demands a supernatural power. It is impossible for any sinner to do anything about their condition. I can't fix it, and you can't fix it. But from cover to cover, Scripture tells us this amazing story that all that is impossible for us is possible for our great and gracious God. Think about what he's done to save you. The impossible things. His son, his precious, perfect son taking our sins. That is not possible, but it happened. The Son of God took upon himself our sins. Think about how impossible it is for his righteousness to be exchanged for my sins. How could my sins be given to Jesus and his righteousness given to me? That's impossible. But it's the gospel. And the gospel is about the power of God for salvation. Think about those hours on the cross where Jesus was bearing the full weight of God's wrath, as it were, descending into the hell of God's wrath. For me, how could he take my place? How could he absorb the wrath of God in those hours for me and for you and for all he came to redeem? Impossible, but that's what he did. And he died. How is it possible for God to die? (laughs) But God died on the cross. The second person of the Holy Trinity died on the cross. Impossible. But it happened. And death held him momentarily in It's awful grip. It's awful chains. The stone was rolled over the tomb. But on the third day, the impossible happened. The Son of God rose from the dead. The 2,000-pound stone rolled into its socket in front of that grave, was tossed away like a marshmallow. And the tomb was empty. And the resurrected Christ appeared to eyewitnesses, 500 at one time. He appeared to the 12. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. Impossible, but it happened. That's why they're waiting at the edge. Ours is an impossible faith. It is of the Lord. It is not of human invention. It is supernatural. It is the power of God. And God did it. When he saved you, you crossed the Red Sea. When he saved you, you crossed the Jordan. When he saved you, he raised you from the dead. When he saved you, he washed away your sins. When he saved you, he exchanged your depravity 
with the righteousness of Christ. He brought you into his kingdom. He gave you a new birth. He put his spirit within you. He adopted you. He is your God. You are his son. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus. And every one of those things is impossible. But that's what God does. Mission impossible. Now, don't you want to love him? Don't you want to serve him? Don't you want to worship him and obey him? Don't you want to cling to his word? Don't you want to fight the good fight of faith for him? Don't you want to be clothed in his armor, treasuring the eternal inheritance above all things, standing against the world, loving him, saying no to every earthly king and power and yes to his lordship, Don't you want to march at his command and follow him wherever he leads? Yes, it's all impossible, but that's what he's called us to do. And that's what he's empowered us to do. Oh, we serve a mighty God. And we're going to cross that river next Lord's Day. And we're going to see what this mighty God does. And we're going to rejoice in our salvation. And like Israel, we're going to know that our God reigns. Would you pray with me? Father, we remember the words of Jesus as we bow in prayer. The things that are impossible with men are possible with you. And we pray that you would help us to lift our vision of you to scriptural heights, that we could see you high and lifted up, and with Isaiah, see your throne and your robe filling the temple. Father, let us see behind the scenes of world events and to know that you reign, that Jesus is Lord, that his power is not matched by anyone or anything, that he is the judge of the living and the dead. He is the God of the impossible. With him, all things are possible. And on top of that list is our own redemption. Father, help us keep our distance. Help us remember who you are. You are our Father, and we give you praise that as we pray, following our Lord's command, we can say, Our Father in heaven, and yet... You are in heaven. You are on your throne. And we are but your servants. Would you help us to respect and to love you because you are holy. Because you are transcendent. And because there is a gap, an intraversible gap between you and us that you have spanned yourself in Christ. And may we love our Savior. May we cling to your word. May we follow your word. May we not hesitate to do your will. May we be filled with courage to walk the new way of righteousness, a way that few go, and yet the way you've commanded us to walk. And Father, give us faith to not be afraid and faith to not turn around and run. 
and nourish us with manna from on heaven, even this hour, that we will see that you are faithful to give everything we need for life and godliness. And especially as we come to this table that you've prepared, feed us again. Let us drink from that rock that is Christ. Let us be nourished on the way as we walk the paths of righteousness. And may you be glorified in us, your chosen people. In Jesus' name, amen.